Thank you, Peter, for leading us uh, in our time of worship. And now, as we continue our worship, let's open the Scriptures together. And uh, may the Spirit of God open our hearts and minds as we submit ourselves to the authority of His Word. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, we're going to pick up, not from verse 3, but we're going to pick up from... Let me see now. From verse 6. No, for context, we'll read verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Verse 8, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this thing, this very thing, this godly sorrow have produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging or wrong and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter so although I wrote to you it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God verse 13 for this reason we have been comforted and besides our comfort we rejoice even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you I was not put to shame but as we spoke all things to you in truth so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. May the Lord add his blessing uh, to his word. Comfort, to be comforted, to rejoice, to have joy. We all want that, don't we? How we long for that. Especially when we're going through times of affliction and trial and, and so forth. Well, that's what this chapter is all about in Paul's situation. Two weeks ago we looked at verses 3 to 5 and uh, what this did was it, give us, it gave us an intimate look into the, the heavy hurting heart of Pastor Paul the Apostle and his heart was through heavy and hurting. And we saw that Paul was weighed down with fear and affliction of soul primarily as a result... Oops, sorry Pete... 
you have to go and reset that thing, mate. Yeah. Primarily, uh, this hurting heart was as a result of these wayward believers in Corinth and the fact that they had spurned and maligned him personally and also particularly the gospel, the ministry of the gospel. And this really hurt Paul. But we also learned that Paul sacrificially loved these difficult people and he wouldn't let them go. And part of not letting them go was that he admonished them via a letter. We discussed it. This is a lost letter that it's referred to even in this chapter. It was a severe letter, someone had termed it. And he was now waiting anxiously for this report of how these believers back in Corinth would respond to the letter that he gave Titus to deliver to them. He was waiting. We saw that though affliction and oppression were heavy on Paul, this passage majors on the comfort of God amidst all these storms and, and fears without and fears within that Paul was experiencing as he was thinking about these believers and how they would accept his letter of admonishment. This whole chapter is not about his downtime. It's all about the comfort of God. amidst the storms that really any believer, any one of us can experience. You see, Paul, the Apostle Paul, and we are to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ, right? That's what he's there for. Paul didn't allow the circumstances of life to crowd out his love for the Corinthians because Paul was confident in the regenerating work of God in their lives and he was confident that as the Lord had regenerated them, had brought them to himself, he would one day bring that to a fruition in the final day of redemption. And because of this Christ-centered view of these difficult saints, the Apostle Paul's affliction of soul was counteracted with an overflowing joy. We see that at the end of verse 4. And so amidst his emotional valleys that he experienced, what the apostle had was had he had this ongoing comfort and overflowing joy. And this offset any deeper dive that his mind could take him. And our minds can take us into some deep dives, right? But Paul had this offset with this Christ-centered view of the believers. As a footnote here, let me suggest this for your consideration. Circumstances in life always produce a variety of emotions. At one end of the spectrum, you will experience happiness, joy, comfort, contentment. And right at the other end of the spectrum, you can be driven to anxiety despair, depression and even psychotic and suicidal behaviour. That's the lower end and none of us want to be in that lower end stuff, right? It's not a good place to be. Well, the Apostle Paul experienced some of this lower end stuff. 
As a matter of fact, we all do from time to time. Not only, not only, this isn't only for the apostles or for church leaders, even though Apostle Paul was a, he was who he is and he, he as a leader was experiencing this, but all of us know this lower end stuff, can I term it, from time to time. Now, I want to be careful and gracious when I say this, so please bear with me. Praise God for the experiences of life that dip us into the lower end of the emotional state spectrum. You get that? Praise God for the experiences of life that dip us into the lower end of the emotional spectrum. Family, marriages, bereavement, decisions that we make, financial situations, our careers, relationships, our health, all this ordinary stuff of life, you know what they are? They are God's tools. God's tools. Tools that he uses to providentially deal with us that cultivate different emotional responses. And those emotional responses will swing us to one end of the spectrum or to the other end of the spectrum. You get the drift? And when it swings the Christian to the lower end, we should be so thankful to God because you know what? Through his providential dealings, he is sending us, each one, a powerful signal. And you know what that signal is? Simply this. Count it all a joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. You know that so well. That's the signal he's sending us. When we swing toward the lower end. Count it all a joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be in the top end response. I want the top end of response of the emotional spectrum to dominate my life. I'm not saying that that I'm going to be rid and want to be rid of any lower end stuff, but I want the top end to dominate and be predominant in my life, like it did the Apostles. I want to be filled and overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit, which certainly includes, by the way, comfort and joy, even in the middle of depressing circumstances, and I'm sure you do as well. See, the Apostle Paul, even though he was overflowing with joy, he still had the afflictions and fears without. He he still had all that depressing stuff, right? So we can ask the question now, how did the apostle maintain a high-end response in the midst of his many trials and afflictions within and without? How did he do that? How did he rise above the depression that was like a fog from hell trying to suffocate his comfort and joy? How did he rise above that? Well, last time we saw that the apostle Paul received comfort from God through the confidence in his people. saw that in verse 3 and 4. Paul's confidence and comfort that produced this overflowing joy was in the regenerating work of God in the Corinthians. 
And Paul continues, as we looked at last week, last time we are together, he continued to see these folks as objects of God's eternal redeeming grace, rather than those people who were personally disloyal and against him. He maintained a Christ-centered view of these people, which demanded that he love them despite the grief they caused him. And the result was? A high-end response, overflowing with joy amidst affliction. Verse 4. It's interesting, isn't it? Most often at the core of emotional downturns, you will find strained, if not damaged, relationships at its base. This was Paul's case. It wasn't the weather. It wasn't finance. It wasn't lack of clothes he had to wear. It was people that caused him to have a heavy heart. This morning, I want to look at the fact that Paul was comforted by God through restored relationships. This was what brought him comfort and joy. I want to look at another aspect. We've had a look at the fact that comfort from God, comfort from God through the confidence of his people, but I want to have a look at another aspect, and this is from verses 5 to 11, is comfort from God through the responses of his people. It wasn't only how he saw people and how he viewed people, but it was also based on the response that he got from people. And so we see in verse 5 that here we're given a close-up view of Paul's state of mind, can we say. And then we see in verse 6 one of those amazing buts in Scripture. Some of us in our theology class this morning um, uh, mentioned this. And uh, this but here is another one that kind of lifts a believer onto higher ground. You know, Ephesians 2, 4 after the bad news of verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sin, and we come down to verse 4, and we see, but God is rich in mercy because of his grace, great love with which he's loved us. Well, here it's similar. And here it says, but God who comforts the depressed. Do you see that? But God who comforts the depressed. You see, Paul has already written in some length about the God of all comfort. Back in chapter 1 he's written that. And now he elaborates how God brought him comfort in a time when he was personally very low and needed uplifting. Now just to spend a little time here on the word comforts, as in your text. It's in the present tense. You may say, well, so big deal, what does that mean? What this does tell us is that God's comfort is ongoing and is available at all times. And that's really important to hang on to, right? It's not something that comes and goes and only there sometimes. It's available at all times. It's also used six times in this chapter and the words joy or rejoicing are used another five. So it gives us an idea of the real predominant theme of this whole chapter amidst all the affliction and trial. The word comfort too, by the way, is the Greek word parakaleo. The word para meaning beside, coming alongside. And here we have this word comfort 
coming alongside comfort, parakaleo. Paul used this word, by the way. He uses it in an English word in our translation when he was the Thessalonians. He spoke of the Thessalonians. And he says, and he reminded the Thessalonians how we, when we were among you, we exhorted and encouraged. The word exhorted is parakaleo, the word comfort. In other words, how we comforted and encouraged and implored each one of you as a father would his children. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 11. Jesus used the same word also when he spoke in chapter 15 of John of before he ascended to heaven. He says, I will send a helper. Remember that? The word helper is from the same word parakaleo, which is the word parakletos, another one who would come alongside and comfort you. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But now we see how God comes alongside and brings the apostle comfort. We heard last time or last week when Peter was preaching here how the psalmist could vouch that the Lord is our shepherd and you read a bit later on that his rod and staff, what do they do? They comfort us. In other words, using shepherd imagery, God's means of correcting and protecting his sheep is with his rod and staff. The rod primarily for disciplinary procedures and prodding them, etc., and, and correction. And the staff is for protecting and guiding. Both are God's tools to bring about comfort for his sheep. The psalmist also recorded it in another psalm. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. How comforting is the word of God? You can also that, I mean. What a comfort to the soul it is just to pick up the word of God and just read it and be encouraged and corrected and, and whatever that would do to us. But here in our text, God comforts the depressed. That is the downcast, the one who is downhearted. In other words, those in such a state that they require and need compassion. It's these people in such times that God can give great comfort. Now note how God does this in Paul's case. God does not do this comforting work through some subliminal, bind-bending, mystical experience. In other words, he doesn't tell the apostle to go and sit on a hill and go, hum. You get what I mean? Now, God's method of comforting the depressed in time of need, and in this case here, and for most cases, I would say, is real simple. It's through people, his people. You see, the first means of comfort is through the arrival, at long last, of Titus. As you can imagine, Paul was heavily burdened about the kind of response the Corinthians might have toward his co-worker and the letter that he carried from him. How would they treat Titus? How would they respond to this letter? I wonder what's going down and what has gone down since. And so the possible fallout weighed heavily on Paul. Well, now the waiting and angst was over. Titus finally arrived. What comfort that brought Paul. What comfort it brought him. A, a fellowship between these two men that had been severed by time and distance was now restored. You see, folks, God uses ordinary people to provide comfort and joy. 
And He uses you and me to provide comfort and joy. The presence and fellowship of friends can be used by God to buoy up any anxious spirit and to bring joy to the downcast heart. This is why I love Sunday by Sunday, week by week, when I see the Lord's people. So you're all gathering together, greeting one another, seeking one another's welfare, greeting one another with a holy kiss or a handshake. I love to see that. You need this. I need this. We all need one another. It's a renewal of our fellowship. Yeah, we've been separated for a week, but now we're together. It's a little picture of what it's going to be like. We're going to be all together in heaven one day, folks. No more severing of fellowship. There will be joy overflowing like we will know and even greater than the Apostle Paul knew. That's what we're hanging out for, right? A renewal of fellowship. It's the, it's the God of comfort working through his people to give and receive comfort as we surround one another. That's what it is. And never deny his work in that. And you see, this is a very good reason for meeting one another and being together as we do. I'm so comforted in heart and mind when I meet up with you. Some of us were up at Jordan and Jenna's yesterday. It was great to see the believers together to hang out. Some of us had a meal together. It was great to be with believers hanging out. And I love being here on Sunday mornings and on during the week. It brings comfort and joy and I hope it brings comfort and joy to your heart to be with one another who are of like mind and who belong to the Lord because you better get used to it. You're going to be together with the Lord and with everyone forever. And it should be something that we're hanging out for now. What this does, it sends a message of love and loyalty when we meet one another. It sends a message of love and loyalty. But let you tell, me tell you, the comfort soon wanes. The comfort soon wanes when large gaps of time sever our fellowship for whatever reason. It really does. There's a word of gracious admonishment. Let us not deprive ourselves and others of the comfort and joy we can give and receive through neglecting our coming together. Make it a priority. We should do. Things of time and sense and other timetables need to take second place. The Lord and his people and gathering together on Sunday should take priority. Absolutely. Then we see that Paul was comforted not only by Titus himself, but by the comfort for which he was comforted. We see this in verse 7. In other words, Paul's comfort, his parakaleo level, gets an additional boost here. It was one good thing. Oh, well, Titus is back. Awesome. But that hasn't finished yet. He gets an additional boost. You see, he, gets, he got more than he expected. Titus' comfort became Paul's comfort. Whatever comforted Titus now comforted Paul. You know, even if Titus had brought back bad news from Corinth, Titus' safety and presence still would have given Paul joy. But what gave him the extra boost of comfort was the scoop on Corinth's spiritual condition. It was all good news. The scoop went down and here was Paul was just drinking it in. And so we need to ask, what was it about Corinth that Paul could record in the end of verse 7? What does he say? So that I rejoiced even more. What was that? 
We have three words in verse 7 that tell us of this turnaround story. It's your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. There's the three words, longing, mourning and zeal. You see that? This is the news that Paul was fully pumped about. He really was. These three words were, were all in reference, by the way, to the Apostle Paul himself. These three words sent a strong message about the Corinthians' loyalty toward Paul and how it had taken a, a dramatic shift in a good but new direction. These once disloyal malcontents had now turned about face from being those who disdained Paul to those who longed to see him. That's what their longing was about. They longed to see him face to face in order to put things right. That's got to be a good thing, right? I love it when people want to front up and put things right. I get a little cagey when people try and escape and take off quickly or pretend they haven't seen you or they don't want to see you face to face. But the Corinthians, they longed. They longed to be with Paul face to face to reiterate their turnaround, their loyalty to him, those who were once disloyal. You see, they, they turned from being once Paul's prideful accusers to also those who mourned over their grievous and harmful actions and attitudes towards him. You see, these people were serious. They were seriously repentant. So not only they longed to meet him, but they mourned. There's the second word. They mourned. This reminds us of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, it wasn't only Apostle Paul was comforted on this. This is a two-way street, and this is what I love. I often love it. There's a comfort that would have come to the Corinthians as well. Man, they'd put things right. They were putting things right. Now, wanted to put things right, and and they were being comforted. They would have been comforted, and this is comforted the Apostle Paul as well. They also turned from being seduced by the false teachers that had crept amongst them. They turned from that to being zealous, there's the third word. So they not only longed to see the Paul, they not only mourned, but they were also zealous. That is, they were zealous now for Paul's inspired apostolic teaching. That is, they now hated what was false and they loved what was true. You think of the word zealous, you think of the zeal of the Lord Jesus. You know when he went into the house of prayer in Jerusalem? Oh wow, he was hot, wasn't he? Hot with zealousness. He went in there and he turned the tables over and he got a cord and he whipped these guys out of it because he was zealous for the purity of the Lord's house. Nothing would stop this guy. Well, this is, this is what the Corinthians are like. They were zealous for Paul's truth and his inspired teaching. This meant that they would now even stand and defend Paul against any further spurious attacks. These Christians, through their longing, their mourning and their zeal, they demonstrated a loyalty for the Apostle. What a turnaround, right? What a turnaround. When you think of their history, praise the Lord that our history is exactly that, especially if it's been a sinful one, right? They came to the Lord. Obviously, we're going to be looking at that, but everything has turned around and, and was right now. And how we need to demonstrate loyalty 
like this. Can I say, even in the church? These people were loyal to the Apostle Paul and his teaching and they, there was a dramatic turnaround, but how we need to practice that as well. You know, loyalty is a dying concept, as you know, in the world today. You only have to go out into the world and you, in your working relationships. Man, you, you're just a number. You could be employed in the greatest employee on the shop floor one day and you could be given a redundancy notice next day or given the sack, or whatever you like to call it. No loyalty. No loyalty by any way. It's a dying concept. But in the church, this kind of loyalty toward Christ and his, and his leaders, and to one another in the church, it needs to be practised. Now, I'm not saying that you're to be loyal to ungodly men, and men who deny the authority of Scripture, but I'm saying that you should be loyal to a church that stands for the truth. You need to be loyal. I need to be loyal to a church and to a body of God's people that the Lord has providentially placed me in that stands for the truth of God's word. Yeah, no, we're not perfect. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about loyalty toward God and his people and those he has appointed as leaders and overseers to guide and lead the people. We need to be loyal. There is so much loyalty to our own ideas. You know that? I have to pull myself up in this often. I'm very loyal to my own ideas and my own notions and my own opinions. But as soon as I go down that track, I find that it's often at the expense of loyalty to the Lord and his truth and his, and his pointed leaders in the, in the local church. Really, I must decrease... And the Lord must increase. And really when you think about the fallout of such an attitude is, and we know it well when we're loyal to our own self and our own ideas, is that I will, every man will do which is right in his own eyes. I'll only meet with the Lord's people when it suits me. Or I'll go somewhere that makes me feel a whole lot better. Or I will even stop going to church full stop. That's the wrong kind of loyalty. Well, the Corinthians turned from being disloyal to the apostle to being loyal and it was demonstrated in their longing and their mourning and their zeal. And this gave Paul the extra boost so that he says, I rejoiced even more, verse 7. And then we see that they responded with something else. They responded with repentance. They responded with repentance. You see, they not only responded correctly to the Apostle Paul, but they also responded correctly to God. Upon recognizing their disloyalty to Paul, they also understood that this was primarily a sin against God. That's what they understood. Folks, any broken, marred or strained relationship, whether it be in the family, the church or with a brother and sister in the Lord, must begin with repentance to God in order for any genuine restoration to take place. It must. Paul loved these people. But it did not stop him from confronting them about their sin, even knowing that it would hurt them. That was not Paul's primary intention to hurt them, right? He knew his letter would hurt them. But hurt them he must. 
in order to point out the truth of their disloyal and sinful actions. And this is not a duty just for church elders and leaders, although it will probably fall on their shoulders more than you. But, but sometimes in our relationship, we're all called to confront sin in our brothers and sisters' lives. But what usually happens, well, it's none of my business. I would rather be like an ostrich and dig my head in the sand so that everything will go away. It doesn't work like that. As brothers and sisters who love one another, we are called to point out the sin in grace and in love of others. This is what Paul did. He loved them so much. He didn't bury his hand in the sand. He knew his words would deeply hurt them. And he didn't regret this because his words of truth about them, they, as we looked at the other week, they were the wounds of a friend. A wounds of a friend. And sometimes that's what love for our brothers and sisters has to do, right? It's not about being comfortable and letting things slide. And sometimes we need to confront sin, as I said before, in the lives of those whom we love, just like Paul did here. He knew his letter would bring them sorrow, but that was not his ultimate goal. It wasn't about getting even or having the last say or, or making them stew in misery with a few cutting words. It wasn't about letting them know that he was right and they were wrong. No, no, that wasn't the agenda. His letter of admonishment was about producing such a sorrow, such a conviction over their sin, that they would be brought to their knees before God and repent, and that's exactly what happened. I wonder if we have prayed even for our brothers and sisters who we know have gone off the rails, who I know are going in a way that they shouldn't go, that they would repent. Sometimes we're so slow at these things, aren't we? You see, this is the work of God in people's lives, folks. This is God bringing about repentance toward himself through the, his servants' love and action. This is what happened. We all want to see God work in our lives, don't we? This is one way he works in our lives. Convicts us of our sin, and I'd say a major work. And these Corinthians were deeply sorrowful about all they had done. Uh, but that was not all. You see, because sorrow over sin does not, that doesn't produce repentance is a waste of time. Just like Judas's deal. You know, when Judas made that deal on Jesus' betrayal, his sorrow was a twat, T-W-O-T, a total waste of time. Why? Because it didn't produce repentance. And repentance being, repentance being, that's the word metanoia, the full meaning is a change of mind that produces a change of behaviour. This is what it means. It's not only a change of mind, it's a change of mind that produces a change of behaviour. And this is what happens to the Corinthians. They repented before God and it was manifested in their changed behaviour toward the Apostle Paul. In other words, genuine repentance is seen in a change of behaviour. That's all it is. That's what it is. So genuine repentance, it will produce a change in lifestyle. It will produce a change of conduct and attitude. So no real change, no real repentance. 
Reminded of the Thessalonians. Remember the Thessalonians, Paul could write to them and, and, and commend them and, and he could look back on their lives when he first went there and preached the gospel and here were these bunch of uh, idol worshippers, pagans, and they turned to the Lord and, and it records there in um, Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, it says they, how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. That's what they did. They turned, there's repentance, they turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. You see, folks, there are too many professing Christians, sad to say, who claim to be Christian, but there's been no, there is no real change in behaviour. They want to claim the benefits of eternal life, but they carry on living in the ways of the world that they love so much. By the way, this is, a, this is the same kind of repentance that's required for salvation when you come to the Lord, know the Lord. You remember Jesus, he preached that. His, his whole message was, is characterised by that. And his first message to record, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, turn from your sin and follow me. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached repentance. In other words, turn away from your sinful ways and turn and follow God. Trust and obey. That's what it is. Some of us had on Thursday night. John 3, the last verse in John 3. And it has the idea of believing. Let me just read that verse again so that I won't misquote it. John 3, and it says this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Pretty straightforward, right? But he who does not obey, you get that? He who does not obey the Son will not see love, life, but the wrath of God abides in him. In other words, what you have here is a typical way of writing. It's like a parallelism uh, that one statement reinforces the other. Here's the first statement. He who believes the Son has eternal life. Statement number one. Second statement that reinforces the first is this. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. So there you have belief and obedience. Repentance, a change of mind, change of behaviour. Those who love me will keep my commandments, Jesus said. This is how the Corinthians responded. They were made sorrowful unto repentance, but also it was without regret, which is the will of God. What is this without regret? You show me a believer who has genuinely repented and who has regretted doing so. I don't know of any. And I'm sure every one of you here who are born again and know the Spirit of God and know, know, know the Lord and uh, where repentance is needed, I might I say it's needed every day. There's never any regrets when a sinner genuinely repents. You never regret that. A believer who repents over sin never regrets that God is at work in his or her life, right? We never regret that. As a matter of fact, the exact is opposite. Genuine repentance to God is like a heavy load being lifted off us. I was reminded this morning, and I'm quoting Brett's little verse that he brought to us in our theology class, Psalm 32 and verse 3. This was David, remember? He committed a great sin. He was silent for quite some period until the prophet confronted him with his sin. And then David was able to write 
later of his experience. And he says in Psalm 32 verse 3, When I kept silent to you, my body wasted away. Of course, we know that he didn't keep silent. He opened up the Lord and there was like a great load. There was no regret on David's part for repenting and coming clean with the Lord. Repentance or sorrow that lead to repentance. It's a, it's a liberating, wonderful truth. It wasn't a worldly sorrow which the, which the uh, text speaks of here. You see, that kind of sorrow, what does it lead? Verse 10, that kind of sorrow only leads to death. You see that? That kind of sorrow, worldly sorrow, a sorrow that doesn't, a sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance is a sorrow that, that wallows in sorrow and it ends in sorrow and it leads a person nowhere. It may lead a person to have a pity party about himself or as in Judas's case, deep regret and then as a way out he went and hanged himself. That's where it led him. Folks, the Christians, the Corinthians got it right here. They really did. Their repentance, according to the will of God, vindicated itself in their positive response at this stage to the Apostle Paul. He was so comforted by this amazing work of God in these people and now restoration was open for Paul and his team to be a blessing to them. The doors, the floodgates were open. There was comfort and joy on both sides. They weren't going to suffer loss, what the scripture tells us. Paul says, you would not suffer loss. That is, they were no longer shutting themselves off from Paul and his ministry, from God's word. Blessing toward them through the apostle and his team would flow unhindered again. I often wonder if this is a huge part of the problem in many of our lives, people's lives. We see so much despair and emptiness and downheartedness even in the lives of God's people, right? And I ask myself, is it because we have cut ourselves off from blessing and are at a loss because of unrepentant attitudes? Unrepentant attitudes. You know, it doesn't have to be some gross and moral sin that we need to be repentant of. Even wrong attitudes are wrong and a sin and need to be repented of before God. And that's why I said, wow, repentance really is a, an attitude. It's a daily thing. It's something that we should be uh, seriously engaged in. You see, because if this is a case, if we have cut ourselves off because of unrepentant attitudes, if this is a case, prideful, selfish, unrepentant spirits what it does is creates a blockage to any spiritual joy and growth in the Lord. It really does. And so we see a lot of, can I say, dead Christians. Well, this is what happened to the Corinthians. But not now. Now blessing could flow. No loss would come to them. Of course, also think of the word loss mentioned earlier in the Corinthians when we stand before the Lord and it's like a profit and loss account opened up anything we've done in the flesh and not for the glory of God will be counted as loss no gain so also could have that implication as well 
But as believers, we should be living every day as repentant believers. That is, like the Corinthians, we need to be demonstrating our repentance. Be it our repentance at our conversion or our ongoing repentance as we confess our sins to him. Because after all, the one we confess our sins to is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9. We need to be daily living in the light of our restored relationship with God, which delivers joy and great comfort to you and to one another. Let's be God's people who practice repentance God's way. For his name's sake, right? Because that's exactly what the Corinthians began to do as we see in verses 11 and 12. And and though this responsive change that God brought about, it brought great comfort to the Apostle Paul, um, what we see here in the next section is how it did that. But you know what? Rather than rush over this section, I'm going to take the liberty of cutting this off here and looking at this next section, next time I need it together. May we all learn and practice godly responses of loyalty and repentance. Because when they are in action, when they are in action and we are being practiced genuinely in our lives, God gives great comfort, joy and blessing to ourselves and to our brothers and sisters in our assembly. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, Help us to understand some of these truths. And Lord, you know our hearts, you know our lives and and uh, convict us, we pray. And if there's anything out of kilter and any relationship strained in or without the church, Lord, we just pray that we may put those right before you and before one another. Help us to do this, Lord. Help us to turn from being loyal to our own ideas but be loyal to you, Lord, and to one another and for the glory of God. I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.